Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. Before we start the show, we wanted to give you some background on the release schedule for this show. Request for Commits is more of a seasonal show. So unlike other shows you may be used to listening to, like The Changelog or GS Party, this show does not publish on a weekly schedule. Instead, we plan and record a full season of shows, which is usually around 8 to 12 episodes, and then get to work editing and producing each individual episode to prep them for release. So you can expect new episodes roughly weekly until we wrap up this season. This season, season two of Request for Commits, Nadia and Michael are focusing on unsung heroes, folks in open source doing amazing things, but not getting much attention. All right, let's get started. Oh, one more thing. If you love this show, rate us on iTunes to help others discover the show too. All right, here we go. to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Evan Yu. Evan is the creator of Vue.js, a JavaScript framework that recently reached 2 million downloads. Evan works full-time on Vue and currently funds his work through Patreon. Our focus with Evan was crowdfunding and community organizing. We talked about what it's like to use Patreon to fully fund yourself, why he decided to do it, and how he balances his own paid work with a growing community of contributors. We also talked about running a community project in the midst of other corporate players and where he sees the future of Vue. So Evan... You started Vue while you were at Google. Um, is that also where you started getting into open source, or did you have a background in open source before then? Um, well, it's an interesting question because um, I had a small project when I was still in school called uh, HTML5 Clear. It was kind of like my first ever project that got some attention. Like It has several hundred stars on GitHub, that was my first taste of, you know, people paying attention to your open source work. But it was not strictly an open source project. It was more like just, just uh, some code that I decided to 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 post on online for whatever reason. Um, so I think Vue is uh, technically the first open source project that I, you know, I put it online and I was dedicated to maintain it. So. Pretty awesome first experience. Yeah, it, it depends on how we define it. Yeah. Did you contribute to open source before then, or? Um, I think I did a little bit. Um, I think it was kind of like yeah. I think I started contributing more as I started working on Vue because when I was working on Vue, I also used other people's projects, and I started to run into bugs in their projects, and I started submitting PRs to fix it so that I can use it for Vue. Uh, nice. <laughs> so is that like completely terrifying then that Vue was your first like intense open source experience? Uh, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Why, why did you end up making Vue? Like what, what was the impetus behind uh, getting that created? Um, I think in the beginning, the, the motive was very simple. It was uh, something I wish I had when I worked on some of the projects I was working on. Uh, at the same time, it seemed like a good opportunity to um, just flex some technical muscles and uh, sort of like the, the the feeling that you see some great ideas or some um, interesting ideas that you see in other people's code and you want to um, you just want to try it out and and write it yourself and see if you can actually implement it. So it, it's a combination of the two. 
but later on, so so the motive for the project changed over time, and so so it started as in more like an experiment, uh, but it gradually evolved into something that I want to, you know, open source and maintain. And but it was more like just giving it a shot, and turns out people were actually liking it. And the more people used it, the more um, I guess the more responsibility that I felt that I should keep it well maintained, and uh, the more I felt motivated to to make it better. So it kind of um, the scope of the project grew, and um, my um, I guess the the goal for the project also kind of evolved along the way. So today it was definitely not like so. So the goal today. I would say it's more like providing a, a, a framework that helps people make it easier for people to build applications. Sounds, you know, crazy ambitious when I first started. Uh, that was definitely not what I had in mind. So you, you said that there were some projects uh, that you were doing at Google at the time that, that kind of mm-hmm. drove you needing it. What, what were those kinds of projects? And then what are the kinds of projects that people are using for it now? And, and is there any kind of difference between those? Oh yeah, definitely a lot of difference. Uh, so the department that I worked at Google was called Google Creative Lab. It's a very special department where we don't work on like in production engineering products, but instead we work on a lot of uh, prototypes, experiments. Some of the projects were more like things you saw with uh, Chrome experiments, but some of them were uh, internal and they were like collaboration between the product teams uh, and we tried to help them design the next iteration of what their product would look like and some of them would be like super experimental like just imagining what this product could could be in five years or ten years so these required a lot of rapid prototyping where we would maybe come up with like three to four crazy ideas and we want to see them uh, we want to see them become tangible in a very short amount of time. And I, I, I basically, my job was to, to create these things uh, as uh, a web-based prototype. So this kind of involves this sort of, the, the whole idea was I need to turn ideas into tangible prototypes as fast as possible. So some of the common elements in, in building web applications today, for example, we want uh, declarative rendering and uh, components and all that would become very helpful in these scenarios too. But at the same time, uh, we probably didn't need some of the more um, some of the things that were geared towards larger scale applications. So that is why um, I felt Angular was a bit too heavy for my use case at that time. And Vue, the initial version of Vue, was essentially a version that extracted the parts that I felt useful. Uh, from Angular and threw away the things that I felt I didn't need at that time. And so now that the project has grown, there are presumably people using it, you know, for more than just uh, like, you know, quick applications, like they actually need to maintain it. Um, has that shifted some of the goals of the project or have you have you really maintained that, like, you know, you don't want to sacrifice any of that speed? Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting because this kind of um, so obviously there are many people using Vue to build large like production apps today uh, and the framework is now today is also very like well suited for those purposes but this initial version of view that focused on this ease of use and uh, you know this use case for rapid prototyping is still there today so if we uh, look at the, how you can use view um, you can still use view by just dropping it into an HTML page with just a script tag or a link to a CDN file and instantly start writing code. Uh, this is kind of now a feature uh, that we we had when we when view was first initially released and it's still true today. But alternatively, if you want to build it, you know the um, the professional way. You can obviously use our CLI to scaffold a full project with the boilerplates and Webpack and all the build tools, testing tools, uh, with all the fancy stuff built in. So we offer like different paths depending on how much you actually want from the framework. Uh, this is also why we call it a progressive framework because it's incrementally adoptable. You can use very small pieces of it, just the core. Uh, for simple use cases for rapid prototyping, but you can use the full stack for uh, more ambitious apps. 
So it's it, the whole stack is incrementally adoptable. You don't you don't have to use everything all at once. I have some, a question about just sort of like the early stages of you and. Um, I, I read that the Chinese community had kind of helped you find popularity around Vue and get it out there. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the Chinese developer community? Uh, sure. Um, so I myself, uh, I'm Chinese. I uh, grew up in China. I came to U.S. Uh, after high school. Uh, I also I'm, I'm pretty active on like the Chinese social networks, basically the Chinese version of Twitter, the Chinese version of Quora. And I would obviously um, talk about Vue or answer questions about Vue on those social networks. And uh, interestingly, um, a lot of people discover Vue first because uh, it's kind of like Vue got popular in the U.S. And then some people in China discovered it and realized, oh, this is actually written by a Chinese guy. And they got really excited about it. And then they found out I, I'm actually active on Chinese social networks. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of an interesting round trip. But somehow, um, we also got uh, pretty popular in China. And uh, I'm not sure how much of my um, social network stuff contributed to it. But I think um, me being Chinese definitely played a role in it. But it's also because um, me being Chinese also helped some contributors from China to uh, voluntarily translate the docs into Chinese, uh, which helped a lot in the adoption. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it all happened pretty naturally. Um, I didn't intentionally try to try to promote it in any way. I think the probably the biggest uh, contributing factor in use popularity in China is because of my answers on Zhihu, which is the, the sort of like the Chinese equivalent of Quora. A lot of people ask, they directly ask questions about Vue and then ask me to answer it. Um, <laughs> and a lot of times uh, I have no, when I have nothing better to do, I just answer those questions. <laughs> and and I think that helped a lot. Uh, people, it made them feel connected to this project more because they, they were able to uh, see the direct interaction with the author framework. And it made them feel like the project is more connected with them. And I think this also kind of an equivalent example would be uh, Dan Abramov interacts a lot with um, with React users. And I think that helped a lot of users connect with React better. So I guess that's the positive part of having someone uh, representing a framework being really active on social networks. That's awesome. Yeah, I've I've seen this in the Node community too. There there are certain projects where because the the maintainers are in China and available on on the social networks, there's just more kind of localized support mm-hmm. for it, and they end up like it's not like those projects aren't used anywhere else, but they certainly have more of a following in China than than elsewhere, which is really interesting. I've, I've noticed this yeah. with the coru- with the coroutine stuff in in Node.js. There's um, a lot of people that that follow that, um, particularly in China. Yeah, we have, uh, I think, one of the core maintainers of Koa is Chinese. And uh, a lot of the active Node contributors are from Alibaba because they use Node.js pretty heavily in production. And um, they've open sourced a lot of modules. And I think it's a, it's a very good thing because they, they contributed a lot to Node.js popularity in China because of all the open source work they do in the public. I'm wondering, like, from my perspective, at least, being newer to open source, a lot of the conversation at least seems dominated by the U.S., Europe, and Australia. Um, And for both of you, actually, have you noticed that developers outside of those areas can feel siloed off? Um, Like, how do you make them feel involved? It sounds like part of what was, like, cool about Vue was that it just made them feel connected to you and to a project. Uh, I think primarily it's still still the the language and partly the cultural barrier that kind of inevitable. Uh, a lot of the developers in China, they, um, they can read and understand English, but a lot of them don't feel comfortable communicating English. It's, uh, it's a lot of uh, extra effort for them to say, for example, like the simplest example is when they want to open an issue. A lot of them have trouble just uh, articulating some of the subtle concepts in programming using a language that is not native to them. 
And I think this is just a natural barrier for them to be able to contribute more, which is also why um, programmers in China often say uh, English is as important as your programming skills if you want to uh, hmm. become a, a really good programmer. Because so much knowledge and so much open source work and so much uh, resources are, are written in English, it is almost essential for a programmer to be proficient in English to be able to, you know, stay up to date with the latest uh, resources. And most of the programmers in China actually can read English, but um, when, when they try to use it to to um, convey some of the more subtle concepts, it's it becomes a struggle, which is I think is the primary reason for them to to be less active on the the main stage uh, of open source. But because I'm Chinese, I'm able to get a peek at the actual, like, you know, the Chinese open source scene. It's actually very, very active. Hmm. It's mostly kind of followed off because of the language barrier. Yeah, in, in the Node project, we have some metrics, and, and it's huge. I mean, it's like 12% of all of our users. <laughs> I mean, wow. it's, which is like a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but move, moving along a little bit, I, I just wanted to know, you've taken the step to kind of go full-time working on, on Vue.js, or, or at least attempt to. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that decision like? What made you want to start working just on your open source project full-time rather than um, also doing a lot of the other work that you've been up to? Yeah, so I was working for Meteor in uh, 2015, I think. Wait, when was that? Actually, oh yeah, 2016, early 2016. Um, that was when I started working on Vue full-time. Before that, I was working for Meteor. Uh, and at Meteor, I already started feeling the pull of this uh, unsustainability of having a day job and at the same time maintaining a, an open source project that's growing uh, more and more popular. Um, the the amount of issues and uh, maintenance and the growing scope of the project was just, uh, it just started feeling uh, too much to be something that I work on in my spare time. And I felt it was not sustainable. And I started seriously thinking about which do I actually wanted to work on more. And I think the answer was, I want to work on Vue more. So that's when I started uh, to think, is there any possible way for me to to turn this into my full-time job instead of um, something I can only attend to in my spare time? I guess that's kind of the question a lot of other open source maintainers are also asking right now. And I didn't really have a good answer at that time. Uh, in fact, I still don't do. Um, the, the patron campaign was more like, just uh, an experiment or an explorative move on my part, uh, because I wanted to, I saw that that there were people sustaining them, themselves by creating content. And I compared that to, to Vue.js or compared that to an open source project. I felt like I'm working on this project um, and it's create, creating value for people. And if I'm creating value for people, is there any way for them to somehow, um, you know, give back in, in a financial form so that I can sustain myself? And this kind of model seemed a very, probably the most direct model that I see, um, because if someone uses my software and they and they feel like it has helped them and they don't want the project to die, then they have at least they have some incentive to, you know, give me some money so that uh, I can keep working on it. Um, so I started the campaign, didn't really think too much about it, and, and just uh, threw it out there. Uh, and it turns out people actually wanted to give me money. And um, some of the companies were really generous. Um, I, had, I had the tiers of like $100 a month, $500 a month, and there was one tier that's $2,000 a month. I put it out there just like thinking no one would probably ever do it, <laughs> but... Uh, but there was this company called Strikingly. Um, it's it's a startup. Um, they were a YC company, but they they somehow moved to China because the founders were Chinese and they couldn't get a U.S. visa. And they they don't actually use Vue, but they have this fund that they just used to donate to open source projects that they felt were doing a good job. So so they signed up. They signed up for the two thousand dollars tier and. 
they were basically saying, uh, we like your project. We want to support you. So we're just giving you $2,000 a month. And that was a really huge help uh, in the beginning. They did it for six months. And that was probably like, if it were not for them, I, I don't think the campaign would ever you know, grow to, to what it is today. Today we have, I think we have like 9,000-ish a month, which is uh, already enough for me to you know, somehow sustain the family and all that. Um, so, so it was, I, I think I'm, I still consider myself extremely lucky to have pulled this off. And I'm, uh, whenever uh, some other open source maintainers ask me for advice, uh, I'm always hesitant to recommend them going this way because I don't feel this this is something that's easily repeatable, and it really depends on uh, how much traction you have gained, and depends on um, what financial situation you're already in. Because uh, I had some money saved up and was basically planned to to do it for free for a few months just to see if it would ever work, um, but it turns out I got to four thousand dollars a month pretty fast. Uh, I was almost able to sustain myself and it just kept growing until uh, it became uh, today. I, I'm pretty proud to say like it's I'm, I'm fully sustained by open source work. Mm. That's awesome. After the break, Nadia and Michael talk with Evan about how he's been able to make open source his full time job, treating it like a job for better balance in life, better balance with his family. We also talk about an often uncomfortable topic, funding. Who should get paid? Where should money be spent? Should this project have a full-time paid developer and how to sustain that? All this and more after the break. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Earlier this year, they made some big announcements. They've expanded their offering to include high memory instances in $5 Linodes. High memory instances are optimized for memory intensive workloads like high performance databases, in-memory caching, rendering and data processing, and the new one gigabyte Linode is their lowest priced instance ever, just $5 a month. This makes it way easier to choose Linode every time you spin up a new server. Linode also increased the outbound network speed limit on all plans to a minimum of 1000 megabits, super fast. Check out linode.com changelog to learn more and get $20 in hosting credit. I, I felt that I wanted to work on few more as my, my full-time job and it was and I generally felt much much better after I switched to working on view for full time because now I can actually treat it like a job I um, I set hours for myself I don't have to stay up late at night anymore so that I you know I can actually spend time with family uh, having spare time as I actually should have uh, you know, uh, and I feel like this is something that's much, much more sustainable now than, you know, having a day job and working on it at the same time. How many other contributors uh, were there to the project when you started the Patreon campaign and, and sort of what's the team look like right now? Hmm. I can't remember exactly how many when I start, started the Patreon campaign. Um, I would say probably only a few. Today, we have a pretty decently sized team, but um, of we have like 20-ish people in the Vue.js organization on GitHub, um, but the team is pretty loosely organized. Um, everyone is just contributing on a volunteer basis, and uh, we don't have a very formal structure of like assigning people tasks or expecting them to do something uh, by, by a deadline or something. And and the team also grows pretty organically. I um, whenever someone makes quality contributions on a, on a regular basis for a while, I just invite them to the organization and uh, ask them 
if you do you want to do this on a regular basis, do you want to just become part of the team? Um, but uh, overall, it's still pretty loose. Um, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable, like you know, because they are doing voluntary work. I don't feel comfortable like assigning them stuff as if it's their duty. Um, it's pretty easy to put yourself in that same position being that you were just doing that recently, right? Like you wouldn't want people assigning things to you when you were, you know, working on it in your own time, right? Yeah, definitely. But, but I have to give a shout out here because the team is doing such an amazing job uh, at um, dealing with the probably the most uh, tedious part of open source work, which is triaging the incoming issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... Um, <laughs> I think the, the amount of issues we get across the whole uh, VJS organization is totally becoming unmanageable for one single person. And luckily we have, you know, a team uh, just uh, helping me to filter out these issues that can be re- uh, relatively easily dealt with and sort of leave me with those ones that are critical or really important so that I can better focus uh, on the things that matter. Um, and other than that, they, they obviously, some of them also make really high quality contributions to the code base itself, um, which are, are really helpful. That's interesting. I want to hear more about that. Like you, you have a growing community. People are taking on more responsibility. A lot of new stuff is rolling in. How did you end up pricing the Patreon campaign? Because you know that you need your time. But um, like you were saying, you're already doing pretty good even with where it's at. You have a bigger goal. Um, so eventually, it, it sounds like you want to spend more money on the project beyond just your your expenses. Um, so, how did you kind of price the Patreon campaign, and and what was the what was the goal in terms of supplementing what was already going on on the community side? Um, I'm not sure how would you define like pricing the Patreon campaign. It was more like I just set the numbers based on just jumping up in tiers. I didn't really think that much about you know, how to you know, distribute it between contributors at that time, because I, I think Open Collective didn't even exist at, back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patreon was kind of like the um, only obvious solution there. And and even today, I actually had a talk with one of the like higher, you know, the, the more frequent contributors, um, Chris, He's he's been making a lot of contributions to the docs. And I we even discussed like, I wish I could have uh, allocated some of the incoming patron pledges to him uh, to help him spend more time on the on the stuff, but he didn't want to. It, it was it has this um, very subtle social aspect of it because he felt it, if he took some of the money, uh, then it seemed unfair for other contributors who also did the work and it becomes a problem of how to how to properly quantify and measure the work that each contributor do and it also kind of creates this really awkward dynamics between the team members so this is actually a question we are still thinking about how to how to best solve but at this moment we are we're trying to somewhat um so so one of the alternative ways we try to um, give back to these contributors is, for example, Chris has got a, a deal for working on educational content for O'Reilly because we uh, he's, he's part of the core team and we connected with O'Reilly and uh, he was able to get that and which offered pretty good compensation on his part. And there's also, um, I think some of the members got contacted by publishers to work on uh, books and other sort of content. So, so this is somewhat indirect ways that we can somewhat give back to the contributors who, because now they are part of the, the core team, they um, get a much better recognition for their expertise in UJS. That's awesome. Yeah, but we we just feel that um, direct allocation of like you know money is somewhat tricky because it's really hard to to properly quantify it. And it, um, we still don't feel there is a very elegant solution to this problem. Yeah, I mean, so the Patreon campaign is really set up to fund you, right? <laughs> like really specifically yeah. you. Um, and, and in fact, you know, you could, you could extend this to 
some other, if you had another idea, you could, you could allocate some work to that, right? Like people really are backing you and investing yep. in you, even though you probably have, you know, enough leftover for the project. We, we've, we've actually heard from other people too. It's like when, when you, when you get money for the project, it's actually hard to figure out what to spend it on. Right. <laughs> what is the project yeah. versus what are you doing? Right, yeah. right. But when, yeah. when people are funding you, they're literally saying like, I want you to work on open source full time. <laughs> like seriously. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, that's a different way to look at it. And in some way, um, this is like this is basically my all the majority chunk of my income now. And you know, I, I need to use this money to pay the bills. I need to you know, in some way, this I need to put these into my savings, even save for retirement, all that stuff. Um, so, to, in some way, patron is more directly connected to the to the creator, the the person. Uh, rather than the project, so it's a it's a little I think yeah it's a little different from the the the, the mindset or the model that Open Collectives is pushing for, where uh, the funding is going to the project. Um, and I think it's an interesting dynamics, and it um, kind of depends on how the how the project is is structured and how the how the creator or or the um, the maintainer want to frame the story or uh, yeah I, I just feel like this is uh, an interesting difference between some of the different funding models that that we see in some of the more popular open source projects yeah i mean i find it really fascinating you know one of the hazards that we we keep hearing about is that you know when you start paying some people other people don't feel as valued um, sometimes. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and it's interesting, like, you know, you, like, you're not running into that. Like you actually have like a pretty thriving community that's still growing. And, and even within that community, they're kind of saying like, no, we actually don't want to be paid directly for any of this stuff. Like it actually is still a concern, even <laughs> though like you, you are, you have your, your Patreon stuff set up, um, to, to continue to kind of sustain the project. And it's really interesting to see how there are like other benefits to being a regular contributor that might not be, I'm getting paid to work on this, but my reputation grows and then I have this book deal. And um, that's really interesting to think about. My brain's going in like a hundred directions right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And another aspect of it uh, I want to mention is one of the core members actually started to work on a project that's like fully dedicated to view resources. Um, it's kind of like, making view videos and all that. I think it's somewhat like um, a way for him to um, to both contribute to view and, you know, provide more content for view users and also in in this process, try to, um, you know, financially sustain himself. Hmm. Interesting. So could you see that there would be, do you say that was a Patreon campaign? Uh, it's not a Patreon campaign. It's more like a, a, a subscription service. Similar to Laracast. Be interesting to think about like if different contributors feel motivated to raise money to work on Vue for their own time, I guess. But it's still different from fun, like raising money for Vue. It's raising money for my work on Vue in this aspect, right? Yeah, it's it's something the uh, Chris has been thinking of too. Uh, he backed off because he felt it's it could be distracting to have multiple campaigns that are in fact uh, for the same project and i think this intrinsically um intrinsically reveals a problem between um how do we support a project do we support the the people behind the project directly or do we support the project and then somehow let the maintainers figure out how to allocate the money yes that's exactly it yeah yeah i, I think this this is something that we haven't really figured out at this point I hope we can we can find a good model for this in the near future. I'm wondering a little bit about just like the logistics of um, knowing all of that now. Is there a legal entity that's associated with Vue? Is there a company? Um, currently, no. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I have a. I mean, I have a, like a single person LLC, but it's really, it really has nothing to do with uh, with how how the project is organized. It's right. mostly just for me to um, send invoices and stuff. But um, uh, as far as I know, I also looked at how, is it possible to start a, a nonprofit organization for it? But uh, it, it's awkward because Vue is at the scale where it's not big enough to warrant a, a 
full like foundation type like work, but it's also big enough that it's not uh, sustainable as a spare time project. So yeah, it's it's stuck in this um, awkward place where we are we're basically trying to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, that's so interesting because people. And I refer to it as like, oh, Vue is funded through Patreon, but really it's your work that's funded through Patreon. And Vue is still an open source project without an associated entity. Yeah. Um, which is actually really cool. I have to ask the obvious question of like, why didn't you decide to start a company and raise venture? I mean, you worked at Meteor. Um, they kind of went that path. Um, yeah, this um, there were actually um, people asking me that. Um, there were some... VCs in China, they actually wanted to give me money. But uh, the problem is, I feel like the, the biggest obvious problem is uh, I don't have a very clear business model for making money off of you. And it, because it's uh, it's an open source project, it's MIT licensed, uh, I don't want to sell it. You know, I don't want to, you know, dual license it and then ask people to pay money for it. So, so I just don't see a, a business model that's that would align with what a VC would want to see. Uh, with that, it just feels awkward to take VC money. And um, I also uh, don't don't want to feel the pressure of, you know, uh, scaling and monetizing beyond what is enough to sustain myself at this, at least at this stage. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's something that's, that's been put on the table before, but I just don't feel like it's, uh, it's the right choice, at least for now. Yeah, makes sense. Not having a business model hasn't seemed to stop most startups in in San Francisco. But <laughs> yeah, at least you're honest. <laughs> I think it's interesting because um, frameworks like React and Angular are essentially backed by huge business entities, but Vue is completely maintained by like an independent. I would say. It's an independent open source project. And for similar projects uh, in, in the same boat with Vue, you know, uh, independent open source projects that are pretty popular but not backed by a big business entity, I think this is a, an unknown territory uh, where um, sustainability is really uh, something we haven't, haven't found a successful or a replicable model to sustain this kind of project. And I kind of want to mention a project, which is Babel. Many people think, kind of have the impression that Babel is backed by Facebook, which in fact it is not. Although Sebastian, who's the original author of Babel, works for Facebook now, he actually no longer maintains the project. It's largely maintained by Henry Zhu, uh, in case you don't know it. Uh, Henry works for Behance, but he actually worked on Babel mostly in his in his spare time, and I, I talked with Henry pretty often. And he's he's struggling with finding more time to work on Babel. And we uh, he asked me for advice because he saw me had a pretty successful Patreon campaign. And and when we when we talked about how he could potentially fund his work on Babel, we ran into all this kind of uh, little problems that we we just mentioned like how because he's he is not the only maintainer of Babel so how do we justify him taking the majority of the fund uh and uh would it make sense to start a, his personal patron or would it make sense to start a project of Babel because you know uh, the the subtle difference here is I am the the creator of you and I am still you know the People essentially associate me with Vue, so they feel comfortable uh, giving me money, knowing that it's going to support Vue. But for, for Harry's case, uh, a lot of people don't even know he is the, the main maintainer behind Babel now. So uh, it's really hard for Harry to start a campaign and say, you should give me money for me to work on Babel. <laughs> and, and we've discussed a lot this uh, behind the scenes, but um, sadly, we have found a really good way for the him to be able to dedicate more time on it. Mm, absolutely. Coming up after the break, 
we go further in this conversation, Nadia, Michael, and Evan go into the struggle of corporate and community-funded open source. They ask questions like, do you have a sense of being David battling Goliath? Do your goals change in open source when you start working on it full-time? And as view grows, does Evan have a plan or know how to fund beyond the current Patreon campaign? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, go to Hired.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. So, Evan, you were starting to touch on Henry's story with Babel um, and the perception that Babel is supported by or is an official Facebook project. Mm-hmm. I'd love to dig in a little bit more around, um, I think a lot of people are perceiving right now that companies are getting involved in open source and that community generated and supported um, open source is harder and harder to support. Um, do you think that there's a future where corporate and open source worlds um, overlap and can live harmoniously or is the future going to be one or the other? Um, I can't really make the prediction, but I think if we want to have a world where, you know, corporate and, and independent open source live in harmony, um, I think the, the enterprise and, and a lot of the business that are using open source need to have their mindsets sort of somewhat transformed or updated and, um, I, I've sometimes I've been thinking about this. Maybe it's just speculation, but it just seems the the incentives for for business to give open source projects money is at this moment it's just um, it's just too weak. They're they're getting value out of these open source projects, but they don't feel obliged to do it, even if uh, the open source project is actively asking for donations or pledges. And one of the things I've encountered in, in Views campaign is in, in the survey, actually 25% of potential donors backed out because they couldn't get their managers or, or whatever to approve the charges. Hmm. And I think this somehow shows that uh, some of the businesses don't even consider donation to open source a valid type of expense. Uh, they They feel like, um, this is not something they've done before and they don't ever want to do it. <laughs> or they just don't feel like this is uh, a justifiable form of expense. Uh, and I think this is somewhat problematic. If we can somehow you know, clear this barrier, where if when a developer say, hey, we're using this awesome open source project and we should support it, we should donate money to it. Uh, and if if we can somehow these business would gladly agree that they should do it, then I think it, we would be in a considerably better situation. And and I know that a lot of developers don't even ask their managers because they know they would not approve it. Uh, <laughs> so so this is somewhat sad. I think I think if we can somehow raise enough awareness that the, the industry actually, you know, consider donating to open source a very very regular, very common thing, then uh, we'd have a much better world. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that there's some companies that at least are willing to put in people resources, right? They're at least like willing to open up their people yeah. to contribute back. But then you're right, there's this whole yeah. other section of companies that aren't willing to do that and aren't willing to put in any money for things that they critically yeah. depend on, right? I was wondering about like, yeah. I, I'm just thinking back to how the... Um, how Patreon is really about funding your work more than view as an entity. Mm-hmm. 
and whether in, let's say, I, I think in like Henry's situation, he got his employer to agree to give him more time to work on Babel, like during work hours. Yep. Um, and I wonder if that's sort of like a viable solution instead of um, donating them. Yeah, I think um, in some way, I think Behance is, it can be considered like the main sponsor of Babel now because they allow Henry to work on Babel right. for some portion of his, his time. And I think that's that's cool. Um, if um, well, I don't want to put Harry in an awkward situation, <laughs> but but I think uh, just have to get him on here. <laughs> yeah, the, this kind of arrangement still has its potential problems, where the maintainer's energy is kind of pulled between what the company would expect of him versus what the open source project itself costs for. But I, as far as I know, there are some cases where, um, similar to how some engineers at Google work full-time on VA, some, some people work full-time on WebKit at Apple. Uh, these are more like mature and ideal examples of people getting paid full-time to, to work on open source, but technically they're actually uh, still, you know, employer of a, of a bigger enterprise. Right. But, but the, the thing is, uh, these projects originated from within those companies where a case for Babel is it's Babel is essentially still an independent open source project. Like no one owns it. The the code is, you know, is it MIT? I don't know, but like it's, it's not like technically owned by a company or anything. Uh, it's fully driven by the, by the maintainers. And although Harry is now the main maintainer, he was originally part of the community and he is still part of the community. So we can say Babel is fully community driven. Uh, and that's kind of still very different from the kind of open source projects that are largely controlled by a company and just made open source. So there's still some difference in there. So, uh, well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. I, I think that you've, you've identified one of these interesting cases where uh, corporate sponsorship, for lack of a better term, or, or even in this case, just the appearance of corporate sponsorship is actually kind of a liability. Yep. Because if they're not putting in enough people to actually maintain the project, then it's actually harder to get funding for people like Henry and for the project because people are like, oh, that's a Facebook thing. They'll take care of it. But there's this whole other section of projects where they really do use that corporate backing, not just to help out with people resources, but also to add like an air of legitimacy to the project. Like mm -hmm. I remember when Angular was released and, you know, the fact that it was used yep. for Google yep. scale web apps was like a selling point. And the same thing for React from Facebook. Yep. Um, and you've been on the other side of that sort of building up a project that <laughs> and not saying, you know, oh, I'm we're backed by mega company. Um, and you turn that into like a real <laughs> yeah. advantage, right? Uh, I wouldn't say that has given us much advantage. I think we've always been fighting an uphill battle, as in that uh, we almost every company adopting Vue are asking the question of why wouldn't we choose React or Angular because they're backed by Facebook or Google. Uh, I just I've been asked that question so many times, uh, and honestly, I still don't have a good answer for it because like people just naturally take big corporate backing as a as somewhat as a badge of, you know, they, they just feel more comfortable using something by their company. <laughs> and to that, uh, I usually, I usually ask them like, what do you actually think it means for open source project to be, to be backed by a big company? And they say, oh, it's more stable. Uh, it's, you know, because they rely on it, this project wouldn't die all of a sudden. Uh, and I guess in some cases, the bus sector is, is smaller. But so, so usually in response to that, I would just point them to, to look at some of the stats. I would say, um, if you care, if you are worried about how well maintained a project is, you can look at the track record because everything is open. It's on GitHub. You can look at, go and look at their commit history. You can go and look at the issues. You can see how many total issues have been filed and how many of them have been handled and how fast they're handled even and uh, how many pull requests they get, how fast the pull requests get merged and reviewed and how many contributors they get. Uh, I think um, it's usually more reliable if you, you look at these numbers directly rather than 
you know, uh, making assumptions just because some project is backed by a huge company or, or in reverse, uh, make the assumption that if a project is not backed by a huge company, it must be somewhat inferior in, in certain aspects. That's usually the, the, um, the best answer I can give, but, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess being backed by a huge company is still a pretty big positive factor in, in terms of adoption for open source projects. I know, it's interesting to think about, I mean, because there's also so many examples where a uh, company has shut down an open source project or kind of just abandoned it or not really paid attention to it. So it's funny that the assumption is that somehow it's more stable or supported. Yeah, uh, I, I usually try to try to avoid uh, avoid mentioning that, but it's, it's true that um, the thing about company-backed open source projects is that um, in a lot of cases, um, Big companies open source the project. Uh, sometimes it's because they want to make it uh, sort of an open standard for a certain industry, or 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 sometimes they, they simply open source it to to serve as some sort of um, publicity improvement to help with recruiting. And but fundamentally, this project needs to be supporting the company's internal, uh, you know, their their work, their production projects. And if this project no longer serves that purpose, then uh, most pro- most companies would probably just cut it or uh, in better terms, give it to the community and let the community drive it. I think uh, it's, uh, I don't know, like I'm not arriving at any conclusions here. I'm just like trying to. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I think you actually covered the contrast earlier a little bit. So you, you talked about earlier how um, the needs of the community and what people were building continued to kind of drive where Vue.js was going. Mm-hmm. In, in these corporate-backed open source projects, that's not always the case. Like they're, they're driven by whatever that particular company is doing with it because the, the needs of the community are kind of secondary to what the, to what the company wants. Um, so yeah. th- their, their whole notion of, you know, well, it's always going to be around. Well, it may not be in a, around in, in a way that's even usable to you, right? Um, like Angular 2 went off mm-hmm. and did a giant breaking release that um, I, I don't think a lot of their community was asking for. Um, it was it was sort of driven by the people internally at Google that wanted to make that change. Whereas like your your solution to that is look like you can contribute to this project, you can become a member of the community and help drive it. You can also you know put in money and, yep. and pay for it and, and continue to drive it. Right? Yeah. I was just thinking about like well, Michael and I have talked about this at least um, my experience with talking to especially I think older generations of open source. And they see what's happening now and they're like, this is the thing that we we're trying to prevent. Um, this is why you have like, I don't want to speak for Apache, but like you have stuff like Apache where that can sort of like diversify risk um, where people aren't participating as companies, but they're participating as contributors. Um, and they were trying to avoid the situation where everything pin is like pinned on one sponsor who might change their mind. Um, that's why I also mm-hmm like especially earlier on, would hear a lot of resistance to people bringing money into open source because they said the amazing thing about open source is there is no money involved and in, or, you know, the project is not being directly funded. Yeah. That means no one can take it away, that people are just contributing because they want to. And I, I don't think that that's sustainable anymore. But there are some interesting lessons yeah. to be learned from those older generations of open source where like community funded is really great because it can also diversify risk. That's true. Yeah, I also I also don't want to lose another thing that you said, Henry, that was really really good, um, which is that a, a, a lot a lot of are you, sorry, not Henry, no, we were talking about Henry for Talk a while. Talk so much about this Henry. Seven, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll interview Henry eventually. Don't worry. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> no, but uh, you mentioned that a lot of times these companies open source these projects so that they can get a standard within a particular industry, and I find that kind of fascinating because what they used to do for that was write standards. Like Companies used mm-hmm. to control a lot of the standards bodies and drive a lot of standards, and there was like a decade of driving yep. standards in this really weird direction that nobody cared about. <laughs> and, and now it seems like they're yep. just skipping the standards phase and going straight to open source projects. Yeah, I think uh, the problem with directly drafting standards is uh, you have this big risk of just uh, having something written as specs and turns out people just don't like it or uh, it's really hard to work with. 
or it turns out like you after you have published the specs you realize it's it hasn't really gone through the enough field testing so it's actually not good enough uh but then you're stuck with it you know you generalize from something that's already working in the field uh so that you spec based on top of that and i think uh the, the the way ES is specced right now, somehow, you know, it, we have these different stage proposals and Babel kind of serves the role of letting people play with it before it's actually become part of the spec. Uh, and now we have much better feedback loop because um, you, you actually get real feedback by, by people using these features before they are even part of the spec. Mm-hmm. I digress, but, uh, but I think uh, it's actually a good thing that we try to, well, I'm not sure if it's it's essentially a good thing, but from an implementation perspective, I think having some open source project to being successful kind of paves the way of having a a solid spec on top of it because it being it becoming successful means it's working for people and it solves a real problem. I'm actually wondering about that as you kind of move into a more like mature phase of view. Like I like thinking about what are all like the different stages of an open source project. And I imagine early on, it's sort of like spreading the word, um, making sure that like getting downloads and at some point you start mm-hmm. to double down on users. And yeah, I mean, like how do you know who's using the project and how do you um, how do you make sure that people are actually using it because your funding depends on it, right? Like if people think it's cool and then kind of get bored with it, they're just going to stop funding you yeah i think um i think we get some sort of very general um sentiment based on tweets that i get and i somewhat keep very loose track of um say the google search trends or um github stars like sometimes i know like none of the or or npm download counts uh none of these alone are very good metrics to determine the the growth of the project, but when they are combined together, you you would get this pretty good uh, combined growth curve. I basically being been using that as kind of the indicator. Actually, a more um, a better indicator is probably the the weekly user active users of the official DevTools plugin, because because that's kind of like what the real developers, the actual developers that are actually using Vue and they, they're using the dev tools. Uh, it's kind of a, a good metrics that I kind of really look at pretty often. Um, aside from that, uh, we also have, uh, so, so I also added the feature in our dev tools plugin, which allows us to, basically the logo just brightens up whenever you visit a website that's using Vue. So sometimes community members would send tweets at me saying, hey, I just discovered this website is using Vue. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's kind of one way of doing it. But uh, I've, I've done a few surveys back in, in the past uh, asking what companies are using Vue in production. But the last one I did, I think, was almost a year ago, maybe. But overall, I'm I'm constantly surprised. Sometimes I, I um, for example, I'm on Twitter and someone mentions me, and you see this pretty cool website that's built with Vue. And another channel is we as we are preparing for ViewConf, I got a lot of a uh, so we are reviewing the talk submissions, and then you start to see all these real people. They are they're these real people who are excited enough about you to submit talks to your conference and uh, and you see what products they work on, what company they work for. And it's pretty, pretty eye-opening. Uh, so, so I think I'm not even fully aware of all the people that are using Vue across the world because um, by the statistics, there are, I think there are more than 100,000 active Vue developers as of now, and then how many applications they must be working on. Uh, honestly, I I don't think I myself have a, have a good enough grasp of, of the, the scale it's, it's, it's now at. So I think it's maybe it's time for another survey. <laughs> I think on that note, that's, that's a great way to take us out <laughs> with, with the, 
the burgeoning, amazing user community. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll we'll probably have you back on in a year or so once you figure that all out. <laughs> and after that, <laughs> and then maybe we'll we'll have something more to say as well. But this has been this has been great. This has been a really great chat. We really got into a lot of really really great stuff. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, Evan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, that's it. Go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I should go to bed. It's like almost 3 a.m. now. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you for tuning in to Request for Commits, this kickoff show for season two. So exciting. We love exploring different perspectives in open source sustainability. And this show is about the human side of code. If you enjoy the show, share it with a friend or two, and we thank you for doing so. Thanks also to our sponsors, Linode and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. Request for Commits is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. And this show is produced by myself, Adam Stokowiak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes like this at changelaw.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.